we're putting up with problems way too long. We're dealing with suffering way too long. We're dealing with challenges way too long when we have access to an authority that can deal with those just like that. And things are existing way too long because we are incorrectly assessing what God has come and established within us and the power that he gave us to do what only he can possibly do. I can tell you for myself, I was about 30 years old when this message hit me. It was so transforming. Ian Thomas was the one who brought that transforming message and began to help me understand what it meant for Christ to live in me. And the uniqueness that that created was Ian Thomas. Amazingly taught to the point where it became exceptionally real and life became, began to be so uniquely different. Given that you have received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Redeemer who died for you historically 1900 years ago once and for all by this one sacrifice for sin forever to reconcile you to a holy God, would you tell me this? Does the knowledge that your sins are forgiven for his dear sake in itself equip you for a life of God-like? Does the knowledge that your sins are forgiven because you have claimed Christ as your Redeemer, you have pleaded His precious blood, you've named His name, you've called upon Him, and you have been accepted by the Father in the Beloved, and your name has been inscribed in the Lamb's Book of Life with this rich assurance of your eternal destiny and security in itself impart to you any new capacity to live a different kind of life from the life that you lived before you were redeemed? I'm going to submit to you tonight that the knowledge that your sins are forgiven adds absolutely nothing to your spiritual capacity to be a different kind of person. The knowledge that he died for you and your sins are forgiven because he died for you in itself does not impart to you any new spiritual caliber of living. If all that Jesus Christ did when he came to this world 1900 years ago was to live that sinless life, to qualify him for that redeeming death, and then go straight back to heaven and simply wait till you got there. That wouldn't be much of a salvation. It would be a salvation that made you fit for heaven and left you hopelessly inadequate for that. Yet all too often this is the gospel that is preached. So we have to add a second statement. The first is the life that he lived qualified him for the death that he died. But here is the second. The death that he died qualifies you to receive the life that he lived. That's the genius of the gospel. The death that he died qualifies you as a forgiven, redeemed sinner, acquitted on a holy basis to become the recipient again, now in the present tense, of the life that he lived then, 1900 years ago. So we discover that the life that he lived then can only condemn him. But isn't this thrilling? It's the life that he lives now in you that saves you. And the Christian life is the life that he lived then. Live now by him. In you, because he's the only person capable of living that kind of life. This is the good news of the gospel. It is God 
that worketh in you both the will and to do of his good pleasure, Christ in you. The hope of glory, the only hope. Now you can see what a wonderfully rich gospel it is we have to preach. You never invite anybody to come just for it, forgiveness. You never invite anybody to come to Jesus just to get to heaven. There's only one valid reason why you and I should ever invite any man, woman, boy or girl to come to the Lord Jesus, and that is for the Lord Jesus. That he himself might step into their humanity and fill them with himself, so that their bodies might become temples of the living God. So that they might literally baptize by the Holy Spirit into his body, they might become living members individually of his corporate body in general. For the life has been imparted by the divine spirit, but we are quenching and frustrated and grieving the spirit of God. Busy being ourselves when the one thing that the Father wants is for the opportunity for his son to be himself. God redeemed your soul that your body might be inhabited by Jesus Christ himself. And for that young man or young woman on the threshold of life here tonight, I want to tell you this. That every horizon beckons you. Heavy, golden with blessings. If only you'll be prepared through death to allow his life to be released. To sign yourself away for God in reckless abandon become expendable in complete unquestioning availability to Jesus. I cannot promise you what it will involve you because I do not know. I know that he knows, for he knows the end from the beginning. And you and I are created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we, that we should walk in. It may give you a lifetime of suffering. It may send you to jail. If God wants to reach some poor, miserable sinner in some concentration camp, he has the right to put you there. If God wants an evangelist in a concentration camp, he simply takes one member of his body who's learned to die and become expendable for God, and he puts him there for three days or three years or thirty. And I wouldn't invite one man, woman, boy or girl to walk down any church to come to Christ who wasn't prepared for that quality of Christianity. Because I want to tell you this, the life he lived qualified him for the death he died. But the death he died qualifies you exclusively for the life he lived. And he demands his lordship. And you not only rob yourself and impoverish yourself beyond all human description, but you rob him. As you claim your inheritance in Christ, fancy robbing Christ of his inheritance. is normal Christianity. My invitation to you tonight is to die. 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 That the latent lordship of his hidden life, Christ, living in me. There's a new reality to something, and we've missed it. When we step over this line and we get it, we understand, we begin to get this new reality that what God came to do was not to get us off this earth someday. Instead of going to hell, we get to go to heaven to be with him. That was never his plan. His plan was to get God out of heaven back into man where he belonged so that we could be normal. Once we get that, we can't go back. 
I don't have the privilege of going back and saying, well, all I wanted to do was go to heaven. Because when that new truth hits, that the great and grand purpose of Jesus coming was so that he would qualify us, cleanse us, deal with our sin, so that his life that he lived could come live in us. What an unusual and great purpose. And we have so, pardon the expression, dumbed this message down. We have made it so ridiculous that we have somehow believed that God's grand purpose was to get me out of hell and into heaven. He could have done that with a far more simple plan than having to send his son. He could have done that in far simpler terms. What does the world need? What do our neighbors need? What do our friends need? What does our community need? What does our nation need? More of us? More of my thoughts, more of my plans, more of my ideas. No, that's kind of what got us here. They need this reality of the gospel. And, and I want to tell you, that ought to be the best news we hear. That we didn't become Christians so that we could then go out and start trying to work hard and be something that we have no possibility of being. I would much rather understand that the Christian life is only made possible because Jesus came, made a choice to come live in me. So that I can relax every day. And let him behave as God, which is all he wanted in the first place. He just wants to be God in me. He just wants me to submit, to let him. That's good news. That ought to excite our hearts. I mean, again, the dumb illustration, I just need, really need to leave one in here, is that picture of that glove. Because the glove in and of itself has no capacity. Here's Adam laying on the ground. In my picture, God has now formed him. Everything about Adam is perfect. His inside, his outside, his brain, his heart, everything perfectly formed. And him laying on the ground there full of potential, full of possibilities, full of opportunities. He's laying on the ground and there's absolutely nothing going on. Why? What needed to happen for all of that possibility to come to life? God had to breathe into him. God had to establish life in him so that all the potential could become reality. All the possibilities could now be seen. All of what God intended is now standing fully as man, not because he was formed perfectly, but because he had the pneuma, he had the spirit, he had life breathed into him. There's that glove, hopelessly inadequate to do anything until it's filled with what it was intended to be filled. And all of a sudden that glove becomes the outward expression of all the power, all the strength, all the goodness, the kindness, the authority that my hand has. When you get that, you can't go back. I have a young man that comes and sees me, and he came for deliverance, and now we just do Bible study. I've never seen anybody more excited about learning than he is. He just comes every week so excited because he has just been introduced to something he's never even imagined. It's changing everything about it because suddenly there's a reality. When somebody said good news, he now gets it. Totally transformed. Christ in us. You're getting a very late version of what happened to me 30 years ago. This was the message. Ian Thomas was the one who brought that transforming message and began to help me understand what it meant for Christ to live in me. The first time I heard anybody talk about body, soul, and spirit and the uniqueness that that created was Ian Thomas. Brilliantly taught. If we can, in this day and time, believe that this message is casual, that there's no urgency about this. There's something missing within us. There's nothing casual about this message. There's eagerness. There's challenge. There's force in this. 
We started the Bible study in Leveland yesterday evening, and uh, it, was, it was so good. Uh, I love teaching this to a group of people for the first time because uh, it, it almost got out of control. I was teaching body, soul, and spirit, and they began to ask questions. I taught significantly longer on many more topics than I thought because the questions, when they begin to come, they're just going to come because they hear something for the first time, and it's like creates a fascination. But I began by sharing with them, and you all have heard this is not going to be new to you, but when you look at these three things and you try to put them in order, family, government, and church, if you're going to solve a problem, you have to drill down to the root. Again, whether that's a medical problem, you look at symptoms, but you're looking for a cause, something that's the root of this. If you're trying to deal with something mechanical, you start taking it apart until you find where the problem is. So when you look across our culture, when you look across our nation, and you realize that there's things that are extremely broken, even reading the news has become fascinating. You know, Amanda prophesying that the United States would no longer be a superpower. I think that day's already come. I mean, we can speak and the world doesn't listen anymore. Nobody's bothered by our threats anymore. Nobody sees the great United States stand up and so they begin to change what they do anymore because it's like largely being ignored. So the question is now, as, as God creates this new opportunity, are we going to rise to that moment and let his voice begin to speak again? Not out of our strength, but out of our weakness. We're going to speak again. And I shared with them, the great error is not our government. The great error is not our families. Where the great error has, has occurred is within our churches. And we don't even bother to, to even evaluate ourselves because we're so busy pointing our fingers at where else the problems are. Well, it's got to be the family. Look at how, how the family's being so destroyed. Look at what our government's doing. No. What did God create first? Where's the root? He established his relationship with man. That's church. Then he established a relationship between man and woman. That's family. And somewhere much later, he established a relationship between man and the rest of the nations. That's government. We better solve it here. This is where we've got to get to something that's powerful. It has to happen in us individually first. Christ in me so that I can experience his life, so that corporately we can come together and become the expression of who he designed us to be. And we sit and we hear these words and they just hit us and they just roll off like we didn't hear anything. How many of you have seen uh, War Room? It engages at a level that we begin to come to a reality that we're not serious yet. They do a great job. And this past weekend, War Room was the number one, made more money than anything else. It's well worth seeing. So I don't know how to create seriousness about this message. I don't know how to create urgency. Because I don't want us to be urgent because we're panicked. I want us to be urgent because the situation says that God is trying to rise within us. That we are the answer to the question that God is asking. But we cannot do it. We heard Ian Thomas say last week, what do you do with a car that doesn't have gas in it? You put gas in it so that the car can function as the car was designed to function. What do you do with, with men who don't have God in them? You put God in them so that they can function normally. Not save them. Provide a place for God to live. I guarantee it creates a dynamic. There's some real life-changing stuff within that teaching. So John 15. I'm not going to expand on this very much. I'm going to begin with verse 9. Remember, Jesus is having a very, very intimate conversation with his disciples. All of the public things that he was going to say, he's, he has now said. These are very private words, very personal things, because he knows what's coming. That's 
been set very well within him, so he's having a very, very intimate and personal conversation. And even as I read it, it seems kind of strange to comment on it because it seems unnecessary. But there's a couple of points I want to make, and then we'll, we'll be dismissed. Beginning with verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue in my love. Please understand, our greatest weapon in launching a war against hatred and bitterness and sin, and, you know, rebellion, whatever it happens to be, our greatest weapon, that which the world does not expect, is love. They don't see it coming. They expect judgment. They expect criticism. They expect our opinion. What they don't expect is love. And Jesus, I mean, he's making these huge statements. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. How do you think God loved his son? How do you think we could ever comprehend exactly what God the Father thinks about his son? Well, we have a few comments. This is my beloved son. This is the son I love, and in him I am so well pleased. We get a few comments from the Father, openly made, about Jesus and and how pleased he was, how pleased he is with what Jesus did. He said, that's the way I've loved you. Continue in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. What did he just do? He connected obedience with love. How critically important it is. He says, if you don't obey me, you can't love me. Because those two things are so sewn together that if you tried to separate them, you would tear the fabric and destroy something. That our willingness to obey is because we're obeying a God that we love and who so tremendously loves us. Jan sent me a quote. In fact, I'm just going to read it. She was reading a book by C.S. Lewis. On the whole, God's love for us is a much safer subject to think about than our love for him. If you're going to hang your hat on love, would you rather hang it on his love for us or our love for him? I believe I'll hang it on his love for me. That's probably a a much safer conversation to have. Because that love for me isn't based on me. That love for me is based on him. His heart comes out of the foundation of who he is, not me. Man, he's talking about profound and deep, deep things. If you love me. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. Everything he's telling us, is, he's connecting with how his, his relationship with his Father. These things I have spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you. you know, an unusual phrase. He says, I, I want you to get this. Let me read that again. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy, Jesus' joy, might remain in us. This is where we begin to have this conversation about joy being the currency. Just like if I did something for Randy and he gives me money, yes, it becomes mine, but how would I identify it? Well, it's, it's, it's Randy's. He gave it to me. It's his money that I now possess. This is Jesus saying, I want you to possess the joy that I have because I've given it to you as currency. And I want you to keep it. I want you to know where it came from. I want you to know how you got that joy how it was given to you as currency. But he goes on, that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. So he says, I I want you to have my joy so that your joy, our joy, could be full. 
Again, what Rhea and Amanda told me was one of those deep and profound things. Because when I hold this cup up, you can tell I've been drinking out of it. I've been dipping inside and I've been drinking what was in it because it's going down. What if I just sat here and I only drank out of the overflow? The cup would always remain full. The reason he wants our joy to be full is so that the people around us can experience the overflow. I will never run out because my joy will be full and you'll know it because you'll be the recipient of the overflow of my joy. And I can say what Jesus says. I want the joy that I gave you. I want it to remain so that your joy can be full so that it can spread to somebody else. This is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. I have watched in the name of denominations People moving in such strange fear, and it is fear, that I can't trust the teachings of a brother in another denomination. I have to protect myself from something that they could say. I wonder how that really plays in God's mind, that I don't have the courage to hear what somebody else has to say because it may not agree with what I believe. I watch this unfold, and I watch the anger that, that comes with it. I watch people protecting themselves, and Jesus says, this is my commandment. Love one another. If I'm busy loving you, I sure don't have to be afraid of you. I don't have to be alarmed that you're going to say something to me that's like, oh, I can't hear that. I don't believe that. It's not what we believe. This tears down the barriers. So I want you to love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. He was telling what was coming. You are my friends. I like this next part. If you do whatsoever, I command you. That was Shel Silverstein's version of how we remain friends forever. Remember what he said? He had a great recipe, how we remain friends forever. I tell you what to do and you do it. It's all it would take for us to be friends. Kind of scriptural because Jesus says right here, you are my friends. If you do whatsoever, I command you. Is that arrogance? I don't think so. Henceforth, I call you not servants for the servant knows not what his Lord does. But I've called you friends for all things that I have heard of my Father. I have made known unto you, Jesus, as I hadn't held anything back. Everything my Father said to speak, I spoke it. Everything I heard him say, I, I expressed it to you. I've held nothing back. That doesn't happen to servants. That only happens to friends. So that you can actually know what the Father's doing. And then this great passage, you have not chosen me. I have chosen you. Now we can get hung up in that part. But the real key is he's, he's saying, I've chose you. As a people, I've chosen you because I have a purpose for you. We studied last week one of those, the great evidences in the early part of John chapter 15 as we come to verses 7 and 8. that He says, for every one of us, I've done this so that you can produce much fruit. The expectation of the Christian life is that we should be fruitful. That, that the overflow of our life, the fact that we know that we're saved, the fact that we know that Jesus died for us, the fact that we know that we've received the Holy Spirit, the fact that we know that we've been forgiven, that God loves us. Out of the overflow of that, people's lives should be touched and the world should be changed. Out of, just out of the overflow. Because we can't contain ourselves because of what Jesus has done. Because of the life he now lives in us and how it just pours out onto others. He says, but I did that so that we could bear much fruit. And here he says, I've, I've chosen you because I, there's a purpose that I have for you. He's talking to us. You've not chosen me, but I've chosen you. And I ordained you, I set you apart, that you should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And I promise you, we take that scripture, 
And immediately we, we begin to qualify and say, but not this, but not this, but not this, but not this. He doesn't create a qualification. As a matter of fact, he said, on earth as it is in heaven. We don't live under that expectation because we can't even imagine having the kind of reality of heaven on earth now. It's because we keep evaluating ourselves. What happened when the disciples brought the loaves and fish? What did they see? They saw how little they had. What an amazing picture. Here they are holding these loaves and fish saying, look, Jesus, there's not much here. Always processing the limitation of what they have and never lifting their eyes and look into the reality of who they were talking to. The man who knows no limit. The man who could create, understand, miraculously see and release the will of the Father. We're doing the same thing. We keep evaluating us. He says, verse 17, these things I command you, again, that you love one another. Renee was in my office last week. We were talking about some serious and difficult things. But I told her that this doesn't happen every single time. When you walked into my office, God established and created an immediate love for her in me. It was immediate. And I told her, I said, today I know why. Because the words that I'm saying to you have got to come out of love. And it has to be an absolute certainty. Because these words spoken any other way won't mean anything. But when there's a reality of how much God loves you, and he's doing everything he can to express it through me today and establishing that love that I have for you, it's because the message was, was secondary. The love was primary. Needed the love first. Then the message could be heard. It was Jesus with the woman caught in adultery. The love was first. The grace was first. The mercy was first. Or she would have heard nothing because she's expecting judgment. She's expecting what she always got. I promise you when we understand love one another and our message and our witness advances in love, people will receive what they would never receive before. They're expecting criticism, they're expecting comparison, they're expecting lessons, they're expecting criticism, whatever it happens to be. Every one of those things gets knocked down in our path when love is the intention. When we let the love of God here rise up in us, the world will begin to listen again to what the church has to say. We just left the love out because we left out the one whose name is love. We keep trying to offer him our version it's just not very pretty. We offer him the love that he placed in us so that they experience the overflow of what he put in us. I guarantee their hearts will begin to melt and they will receive what they had never received before. You'll change them. You'll change the world. Most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for tonight. We just thank you for this moment. I still thank you, Lord, for Ian Thomas and for the blessing that he is in my life. I'm so glad, Lord, that he gets to be with you now, but he was so faithful for so many years going back and forth across this earth, telling this message, sharing this message and the reality of Christ in us. And I thank you, Lord, that you allowed me to cross his path and, uh, Lord, that you have taught me so deeply and profoundly by the work of the Spirit through a man who was faithful. Let us be those faithful men and women still touching and transforming lives. In the name of Jesus, amen.